My name is Inoa Mark Mohammed Onyoro De Elams, though usually I just go by Inoa Elams and this is Diaspora Files. And this is the first episode of Diaspora Files. We're two old friends born in London to Nigerian parents who moved over to the UK in the late 80s. That was over 20 years ago and we're still wondering what we're doing here. We've all heard the headlines about migrants. There were too many of them. They're taking our jobs, they might be terrorists and fundamentally they're a threat to this country's way of life. We're most interested in this last point because we were born into diaspora, away from the place our parents call home, and have spent a long time discussing questions of home and belonging. More so now than ever, it feels important for us to explore the places where different diasporas meet in Britain. So, our podcast is a series of conversations with people living in diaspora. Along the way, we discuss the stuff that binds people together, as well as everything that makes us different. For example, we talked about what it feels like to live in Alabama as a South Korean, or to look white if you're actually Indian, and how difficult it is to find the words that truly reflect our identity. So first up, we're speaking to Inwa Ellens, poet, playwright and founder of The Midnight Run, a walking cultural journey through a city as it sleeps. I met Inwa at a poetry night in Camden, and after hearing his poetry, I wanted to know more. We spoke to Inua about leaving his home in the Nigerian city of Jos and the different places his creativity has taken him since then. What does your first name mean? Inua means shade, like shade. underneath a tree, like a place of solace and comfort from the sun. It's a Hausa name, so it's from up north. Up north in Nigeria. Up north in, I'm sorry, I just... <laughs> sorry, it's from not the Scandinavias. It's, it's from northern Nigeria. However, if you think of the global north, it is a character in Inuit mythology, spelled the exact same way. It's like a force of life that um, the, the, the Inuits worship. That is jazzy as hell. Okay, these are questions we always ask people Okay. So if you could start off by telling us where you are from and how did you get here? So I am from Jos, primarily I was born in Jos in Nigeria. Um, I lived in Lagos for a little bit and then I moved to London when I was 12. Then I moved to Dublin when I was 15 and I returned to London when I was 18. And I got here via the Victoria Line from Brixton where I live. And... You spoke about your childhood and moving from Jos to London mm. and to Dublin. When did you first feel different? When did I first feel different? Mm-hmm. Um, I was four years old. Um, I, I planned an entire city in just I started to take four beats of the A4 sheets of paper together and and um and I and I planned the city and was split in half where the boys would live and where the girls would live. And um my father was so proud he folded my drawing and put it in his briefcase and took it to work. Which was I guess, I think the greatest compliment that could have been paid to a four year old boy. And that was the first time I began to feel well, well, just that there was a creative impulse in me which my sisters didn't share in the same way. Yeah. So, yeah, I was four years old. Okay. 
Interesting. And how do you define yourself? Um, that that's that's so political a question. It's it's well, it's fascinating. <laughs> um, do you do you mean in terms of work? However you want to tell us. Well, if it's political, that's why. Why is it political? Be, everything is, mm-hmm. especially if you live in the West and you're a black man with a beard, who's an artist. I think every everything is. You walk into a room and the air shifts, the molecules dance around you. Like, um, I think I define. How do I define myself? I think as an immigrant. And I mean that in a geographical sense, in an artistic sense, in a digital sense, in a spiritual sense, in a religious sense, in a gender-based, like, through and through, I think I'm an immigrant. That's how I define myself more so than anything else. Okay. How does that shape the way that you function, that you um, deal with life? Just, I've, I've just always been restless, and I've never found a label adequate enough for myself even when I try to create a label for myself so other people understand me um, I always seem to, to break out of it or it just never seems to contain everything um, so in a, ge- in a geographical sense yes because um, I've, I've moved quite a few times um, in terms of nationality I definitely don't feel like a Nigerian nor do I feel British um, nor do I feel English, the closest thing I feel like is like a Londoner, but then like a South Londoner specifically. But even then, because of gentrification, South London is no longer becoming South London. So that little bubble of an identity is slowly bursting rapidly. Well, I guess it's rapidly bursting now. Um, so even in that sense, I'm, I'm still, it's still shifting the sands underneath me. Um, Gender-wise, I was born... Um, with, with a twin sister and I have and I grew up with three really strong women and I never I've never considered myself a classical a man or even a stereotypical man in any, any sense or shape of the word um, of, of the concept rather because um, what what it meant to be a good brother was to play with my sisters and playing with my sisters was doing things that boys didn't necessarily stereotypically do. So even from my conception, from growing up, from thinking about um, play and and masculinity, it was it was always blurred, you know. Um, um, and artistically, I do various things for money and for fun and for joy. So I, most of the time, I write poetry, which I, I began to write long poetry, which became theatric, which I would perform, and I've begun to write over the last few years um, long poetic plays, which other people perform. So within the theatre work, I'm an actor-slash-poet-slash-performer who writes one-man plays, and when I enter them into competitions, no one really knows where to put it or what to do with it. And it's not... And I don't write... And I kind of write dramatic short stories that are poetically structured or use poetic devices in a narrative so within the theater world i'm not one thing 
which is frustrating because sometimes I'm excluded from some from 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 certain things um, in the poetry world because I also work in terms in the spoken word settings. Um, the spoken word poets think I'm think I'm far too lit- literary and too pagey, and the page poets think I'm far too spoken wordy. So again, like none of those labels kind of work well for me. So I'm constantly shifting. I just I, yeah, I just seem to migrate. From, from everything. Also, you mentioned spiritually, yeah. religiously, could you um, tell us about that as well? Yeah, my father was a Muslim when he married my mother, who was a Christian, and we lived in northern Nigeria. And part of the reason we left is because the the, the Muslim powers that be weren't happy with that. My father went to Mecca for the pilgrimage and saw some things that he wasn't happy with, and he came back to Nigeria and wanted to be a Christian, and that's when all hell broke loose and we had to leave Nigeria. So, And when I was born um, and growing up, I went to the mosque as often as I went to the church. Even in boarding school, I was just... It wasn't a thing to me. Those, those religions weren't opposing. So therefore, even in that most kind of like primal and most personal relationships with God, I was kind of shifting from place to place. And then when I began reading up about Zen religion and Buddhism, it just made vastly more sense to me. And then I began to dip my toe in philosophy, which just kind of did weird things to a 14-year-old boy, um, just questioning the nature of reality and re- and nature of God with a father who was migrating from one religion to another and a mother who was... Yeah, so even within that, it was just a, a weird childhood that I'm still, I, I'm, I guess I'm still questioning it. And do you feel that that applies to all of the other parts, composite parts of your identity? Um, do you seek to resolve them? No, 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 I definitely don't. I think I've, I've given up on destinations. I think they are, they are a fool's quest. And so, nah, I, I don't, I don't, I think... Yeah, I've I've accepted that I am an immigrant and I am always constantly searching for home. But also, the searching is more important than the destination because as soon as you grab it, it's like trying to pin down the ocean and dissipates. It's a Sisyphean task. It's just pointless. So, yeah, I've just accepted that I'm that I'm going. Okay, okay. But can you tell us a bit more about moving? first of all to London and then to Dublin and what that shifting did to you at that particular age? Um, so the, fir- the, f- the first hurdle was, the first catastrophic thing was leaving Joss and leaving my best friends and um, just crying all the way, then arriving here, then trying to, then trying to fit in to being British. And, and going to school and, and realizing that racism existed and not even like and not, not knowing what that was. It was just so alien a concept to me. And so I, I finally got to grips with that when I was 15. And, I, and just when I thought I'd figured out how to be British, um, I moved to Ireland. One of the things that plagued me whilst in those first three years was something that all the black boys kept on telling me. In London, they kept on saying, um, stop acting white. And I didn't understand that. I thought I'm probably like skin wise, I'm the darkest person in this classroom. And um and I think I shrugged it off and surrounded myself with enough people that I began to think that didn't matter and it didn't. And at that kind of precise moment I moved 
and I went and I went to Dublin, and I remember arriving where in a school where I was the only black boy, and suddenly all the stereotypes that existed in London became more pronounced and more visceral. I remember it was just doing crazy things to me and getting home late one Friday night after school and, and just looking in the mirror and thinking, what are you gonna do? Who do you who do you wanna be? How are you gonna do that? And um, I kind of decided that I was unhappy and I have to be myself regardless of, of yeah. And just everything just kinda just kinda changed. But what I what I what I discovered that I was doing was I'd begun to have to prove myself every day. Um that not only would I be the smartest kid in the classroom, I would make sure that I'd also um did did it effortlessly, for instance. I'll make sure that um I felt like I was representing Africa and the whole continent and also Africa, African-Americans just, just in this tiny Irish bubble. And there's all this weight on my shoulder. And, and I began to just swagger down the hall with a confidence which I didn't rely on when I, when I lived in London. And years later, I, I moved from Dublin back to London and I was walking through Peckham and I realized that there was an arrogance in my step which wasn't there before I moved to Ireland. And I think that is what those boys picked up on when I first arrived from Nigeria, was that I had no airs on my shoulder, I had nothing, I had no aggro, no beef with anyone because I'd just come from Nigeria where I expected doors to open simply because I asked. Whereas if you're born here, I think you have to, you have to want to break the doors down as, and I had none of that. I, I realized that I had arrived with black privilege and the the black boys who were in my school in London didn't have any of that. And I think that is what they meant by stop acting white, stop acting as if the world will just bend over for you if you ask nicely. And so that was one of the biggest shifts in my consciousness between those those few years, just realizing that it would be difficult and that the battle scars, I would wear them whether I was conscious or not, and it would affect everything from how aggressively I spoke to people to how we just walk down the corridor, for instance. So, spaces and just move through them differently and so I wanted to ask a bit about the kind of places that you're drawn to because you've spoken about the city mm. quite a lot and I wondered why you're compelled to the city um I think I just major cities specifically because lots of people in London are from everywhere else and I like that sense of transience that bubble of of a nowhere yeah that nowhereness of London or that everywhere else it is like and that's I think that's why I'm drawn to cities I like that it doesn't that London doesn't sleep that is always is always open at night you can walk out and 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 find people or spirits as lost as you are and and yeah and I think that's why I do the events like the midnight run I try to find those nocturnal people who are, who stay up at night questioning 
what it means to live in a city like this, why they're always thinking outside the mainstream, um, and if there are such people like them who just mm-hmm. want to spend 12 hours with complete strangers walking through the city. And, and we, we, there's just a tribe of people who are, who are searching for something and also I'm not sure what that thing is, but want to search regardless. And I think those are the kind of people who come to the midnight run who are just questioning and trying to figure out the shape of things. Can you tell us, can you sort of break down what the Midnight Run is to someone who doesn't, who's never heard um, of it and ha- then say how the idea came about? Because it's fascinating and it yeah. sounds very fun. Okay, so the Midnight Run is, is, is essentially a walk, on a cultural slash arts-filled journey through a city, um, either from 6 p.m. to midnight or from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., where I gather strangers to play through the streets of a city and we walk, we eat, we dance, we write poetry, we create theater, we do little bits of gardening, we do tai chi as the sun rises, we we create like you know, everything from, from puppetry to, to 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 tailoring to you know, it's just it's 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 essentially it's it's a container for conversation and we walk. And and that's it. But it's much more fun than that because um, the the mid the midnight runners those are, those are the participants who come. Um, I never tell them what to expect. I just tell them to come expecting the unexpected. So they never are sure of what's going to happen. They just trust that I know what is going to happen. And sometimes I don't. And I make it sure that anything can go wrong. But all we're going to do is spend these 12 hours getting to know each other. And I invite artists local to the city to set up creative workshops or creative tasks, which are just other ways for the facilitators and for the midnight runners, the participants, to get to know each other. So... Just everything from writing short story to um, graffiti art to parkour or whatever. And I've been doing Midnight Run since 2005. And so far, um, they've happened as far as Auckland in New Zealand um, to Italy to Spain. And this year is our 10-year anniversary. And we're doing a bunch. Thank you. How many people usually go on a run? 35 people. Though I've had up to 50, but 35 is a comfortable number. Yeah. Because I, I really love the sense of abandonment and trust that it seems to capture. And, and for me, that's actually quite rare in a city because mm. during the day, people go through, they're very hostile to strangers, you don't want to look at people in the eye. Mm. And yet you manage to create something that sort of breaks down those boundaries that's and because to be vulnerable and just to have fun yeah it's because that's what happens at night all all the busy people all the bankers all the quick footed all the runners um, just go home because they're exhausted <laughs> whereas the rest of us are just waking up and, and thinking of the night and we try to walk down those busy places to realise how ready they are to be colonised at night like those are our own spaces like I'll always remember running up, doing 100-meter sprints up Oxford Street at about 3 a.m., just knowing there was no traffic coming towards us, just just things like that, or, or planting daffodils into a traffic island, about 30 of us on our hands and knees, just planting flowers into the city, and just, yeah, so that's, yeah, it's just, it's just without doubt the most human I feel in cities, and, um, and the most fun I have every year. It's, it's exhausting planning one, but the rewards, yeah. Mm.
I'm Taylor. I'm Yosola. You're listening to Diaspora Files. We're speaking to poet and playwright Inwa Ellens. Up next, we chat to Inwa about art, masculinity, and African barbershops. into artistic projects you have chosen to inhabit or make your art in, in different places you've done residencies in Covent Garden Piazza and then also um, in barbershops in South London mm. and so it seemed like you do really as you're creating want to live in spaces or just kind of understand them and so what does it mean to live as an artist like in your day like not just when you're commissioned but as you move I think I think if art is to mean is to mean anything, that is that is the process it needs to go through. There's this there's this very English way of, of constructing poetry, which has changed now, especially like with the young contemporary poets, which is that um the poet kinda of sits in the darkness and you know, and mines the darkness for truths about the human spirit and brings it out and speaks of it in this monotone voice to audiences who sit down hushed, you know, waiting, you know, and for me that's just that's just so old and um and arrogant and not very African or Nigerian specifically. Alright, there's this book called An Introduction to English Poetry, where the poet who wrote it has, has kind of has become very aware of this and he talks about how the he went to this conference where there was an English poet, an American poet and a Nigerian poet. And um the English poet kind of just read, you know, reverently and everyone listened and you know, clapped their clap politely etc the american did so he followed suit with a little bit more of of, a, of an identity of a frankness but but not enough and then when the nigerian poet began performing he kind of brought out drums and instruments and was singing along to his poems and had the entire audience laughing and cheering him etc then afterwards in the change room the the english poet was saying oh yeah that's not fair to be entertaining the crowd and bringing the drum like you were just you're not supposed to deliver poetry like that. And the Nigerian poet just laughed in his face and said, where I'm from, people don't care that I'm a poet. That doesn't come with its own like reverence. If I am telling them a story and I'm not doing it well, they'll take the story and tell it amongst themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So I definitely come from that, from that attempt to, to create art and, to, to, to be aware of my audiences and to go to them if I'm ever to write about them and I want them to respect what I've written. It needs to be on an equal footing and on a level playing field where there isn't a a subject matter and me, I'm voyeuristic. It's like I've come to ask you questions so we can create these, this, these things together. So I always like to work in the spaces and amongst the people that I'm writing about or that I have to write about that I want to. That's the only way art can have any integrity, I think. Yeah. Earlier when you were speaking about as a child growing up and having a twin sister and then older sisters and how for you, like being a good brother, being able to play with your sisters, but that affected or that shaped your understanding of masculinity mm. and then you've written a play now about five guys and their friendship and them all playing together so mm. I wanted to find out yeah, where your understanding of masculinity has come to now and I think what it means to be particularly in this in this in this in this decade 
I think masculinity is shifting quickly and is vast and it's changing both on the African continent and 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 in the European continent. Um, so I think men are generally coming to to realize the space that I was born into <laughs> that um, that concepts don't exist, gender doesn't exist, all of those are societal con- constructs and sometimes we choose to adhere to them at our own detriment um, and you know on various levels that happens. So um, I guess it's one of the things I've been writing about. Um, before The Spoiling Suite I was working on a play called Barbershop Chronicles which is a lot about the shifting identity of African masculinity and having those conversations with with men in the various barbershops, just illuminated that in so many different lights. It was staggering. Everything from um, a man in Kenya talking about how, because the the Kenyan government had you know announced the mandates to give women thirty percent of you know governmental contracts con- um, contracts for work, his wife had now gotten big boots in the house and she was running around Nairobi, you know. <laughs> with big ideas in her head and he didn't know how to handle that, you know, and he, and he feared for his family, for his standing in the family, from for what the country might become, you know. Um, so everything from those intimate conversations to um, to to conversations in Uganda where um, a man was talking about how he doesn't believe in love, um that he only believes in godly love and that he loves, you know, orphans and the homeless people and the sick and the poor and he does tons for them, but he doesn't believe in human love, even though he was effectively married and living with his wife. So I said, you know, do you love your wife? And he said, yes, but not like not like love love, like like a practical, emotionless kind of love. And, you know, so I just found that so fascinating, especially when... It, there isn't a perception that African men think that critically about love to differentiate it on these various various kind of levels. You touched on something that I'm quite curious about as someone who's not a man and who doesn't necessarily... I'm never present when there are conversations just between men. Mm. But you spoke when you went, about when you went to Africa to sort of research the Barbershop Chronicles and you were sort of you created quite an intimate space for people to share mm. their experiences with you. And I wondered, yeah, just how intimacy between men works. Well, barbershops are already intimate spaces. All I needed to do was was to get them to trust me and to think and to know that I would not exploit their voices or their stories. Um, but some of them were actually angrier that I stopped their mid-conversation to ask if I could record it because they didn't actually care and when I'd say the way I can change all the names, you know, but barbershops are already intimate places. The reason why the project started is because years ago, um, I was told about um, um, a structure or a charity who wanted to teach barbers the very basics in counseling to know what would happen or how to handle things that would come out of conversation. And I was flabbergasted because I didn't know conversations could get that delicate, that personal. And... Um, and up until that point, I'd, mo- I'd mostly cut my hair myself. Um, but suddenly I found a new reason to go to barbershops <laughs> and listen to no conversations. Um, yeah, so so th- those conversations were already ongoing and they still are ongoing. Um, and, and I just tried to dramatize it 
and to clean it up a little. And so, yeah, it, it wasn't difficult at all to gain their trust. I just, they just needed to understand that um, I was part of their community, which I am, and, and, that, and that was it. I mean, you've spoken about other places. As I understand, you were traveling in Africa for about six weeks yeah. to different places. What was your experience of the conversations that took place in Nigerian barbershops? Mm. Um, and what was the most illuminating discovery you feel you made about a perceived Nigerian masculinity? I was staying with my uncle in Victoria Island, and the barbers in Victoria Island in were Lagos. in Lagos were the most. Um, they were the most deflated barbers because their clients never spoke to them. These are rich men who just sat in the chair and would not communicate to the barbers because they thought themselves better than the barbers. Just classic, you know, Lagosian arrogance. And they just ignored. I met a barber who said that one of the reasons why he gets so many clients is because he's ambidextrous. Therefore, he has to he has to communicate. He, he barely communicates. They just want to sit in a chair and they can dance around with two clippers at a time sometimes and then they can go. So those the week I spent in Lagos was the most frustrating, was the place where I felt the most alienated as a Nigerian, which is fascinating. But um, what saved Lagos, what made it, what made that project, I guess, sorry, that leg of research worthwhile was my taxi driver. It was a guy called um, Wallace. And Wallace, when, when he was driving me back to the airport, when I told him how frustrated I was, he just said, oh, you should have called me and I've taken to my barbers. And then he just launched into this almost half, half an hour discussion just about the intimate workings of his barbershop. And I just, I just pressed record and dramatized everything he said. So, I, so he talked about how um, on the mainland is very different. If you're on the mainland... Everyone is everyone. There, there's no hierarchy. If you come to have, if you come to have a haircut, whether you like it or not, you're going to enter into a conversation you don't want to have with, with someone, and you know tempers will rise, but it will be okay. He talked about how because there's such little electricity on the mainland, most people come to the barber shop, come to charge their phones, and at any one time they're up to you know 15 phones charging, and and people just come there for that, and it's just this. It's like a lighthouse in a community, he said. It's like this beacon where all the men just congregate. And I, I was just gutted that I hadn't gone there. Yeah, I just spent time on the mainland. Yeah, but um, but so those those communities definitely still exist. And but I don't know. Even though I barely stepped in the barbershop where I could do what I was there for. Um, you know the Nigerians were just the most entertaining. Even just conversations or arguments with taxi drivers or security guards were just were just ridiculous. But also, it was the first time I realized how different we are. Like I traveled north, south, east, right across Africa, but literally, Nigerians are just a different breed of man. They they were just the most like aggressive funniest alluring just flip on the hat um 
these Africans were so laid back. They were, I, I couldn't believe people could be that chilled and could have my skin color. They were just just so, so relaxed. South Africans were kind of a little bit westernized and critical of Africa in general, every, everything upwards. But the Nigerians were by far the most aggressive, the loudest, the most boisterous, you know. And the, and the Ghanaians were just a lot more chilled. But the Nigerians, it's just, I've never met an African like us. Very organic but restless creativity. Mm. And we want to know what feeds that. Um I don't know. I once read that um The Inklings of Poets are the Forgotten Adventures of God. I've forgotten who wrote that. I think it was John Keats. But the idea is that poets go where where God might have gone if he had an extra day, or just you know, they they just they just stray into the gray areas. And I think I was born in a gray area. I think my identity is a gray area, and I'm always just churning and mining for things. And when I find an idea. I just want to bring it into fruition. I just want the world to see, yo, you can be this way as well. And 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 that 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 impulse is just unquenchable just to create beautiful things for people to experience. It's it's kind of pointless. Like really because I could be trying to find a cure for cancer, <laughs> you know, it could be just driving a bus, for instance, taking people from one place, those are practical things, but I don't know, I just I, I just want I just want beautiful things to be, I think that's what drives me, that, com, that, that commitment to to creating something fine, yeah The very last question what does diaspora mean to you? Oh what does diaspora mean to me? I don't know. I think... I went through a period of trying to Google it and I couldn't find a good enough um, description or or my MacBook Pro didn't have a term for it, which, which was nice. Um, and nice in the sense that it wasn't... It wasn't clearly defined. Which I think might be what it means to be part of a diasporic community to not be clearly defined um, and just just searching for your own cloud I'm Tana. And I'm Yosola. And that was episode one of Diaspora Files with music by the wonderful Post Louis. If you enjoyed the show, give us some love by following us on Facebook, Twitter and SoundCloud for future episodes and more diasporic delights.